the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, David and his men defend the people against the Philistines, even as Saul tries to hunt David down. We'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 1. The title of the message is, A Trusting Heart. First Samuel 23. Remember the theme of the book of First Samuel is lessons from the heart. And we have been seeing good things and bad things that are in the heart at times. Hearts that are filled with fear, hearts that get fixed, hearts that trust the Lord, hearts that trust themselves. And we're going to look at David again. David and his 400 men there in the southern part of Judah. The high priest is with them. Remember, Saul has slaughtered the family of the priests, the whole city of Nob. But the question that we ask concerning David is, now what? I mean, why did the Lord tell David to go back to the place where he's a fugitive? Uh, Why not stay in Moab where it's safe? Well, even though King Saul is ignoring the Lord, the Lord still loves his people Israel. And God is very interested in their well-being. So when the Philistines invade and Saul does nothing, God sends David into danger to deal with them. So chapter 23, we begin in verse 1. It says, Then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines fight against Hilah, and they rob the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and smite these Philistines? And the Lord said unto David, Go and smite the Philistines, and save Hilah. And David His men said unto him, Behold, we be afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we come to Keilah and fight against the armies of the Philistines? Well, then David inquired of the Lord yet again, and the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men, they're just trying to basically keep on the run from Saul, uh, or at least keep word from Saul uh, of where they are. News comes to David saying the Philistines fight against Keilah. Now, uh, Keilah was a fortified city near the border with the Philistines. It was very exposed to Philistine attack because it was in the lowlands there on the, the coastal plain. And so it mentions here that not only did they fight against Keilah, but they ro- were robbing the threshing floors. They were plundering and spoiling the, the harvest. So this was a planned attack by the Philistines during the harvest time to cripple Keilah's economy and their food supply. 
Now, the, the people of this city would, would never abandon their harvest to be plundered unless they'd lost the battle. They're not just going to leave. And so with such a, a big threat to this city's survival, the big question is, where is Saul? I mean, he's their king. He's supposed to be looking out for them. He's supposed to be protecting them. Well, apparently he's too busy wiping out women and children from his own people to rescue Kela from their real enemies. And with no one to rescue them, David wonders if the Lord brought him and his men back to Israel for this purpose. Look at verse 2. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and smite these Philistines? Now, he is inquiring of the Lord through the Urim and the Thummim. We will see later on how he's able to do that. But it mentions that the Lord answers him and says, Go and smite the Philistines and save Keilah. Verse 3, though, notice David's men aren't too keen on this idea when David gets his answer and announces it to him. And David's men said unto him, Behold, which behold means, let's think about this. We shouldn't rush into this. Behold, we be afraid here in Judah. David, we don't think you've thought this through completely. We haven't had any confrontations with Saul yet, but just being in Judah terrifies us. We're all fugitives. We're all in trouble. How are we going to stand up against a Philistine army? And I love David's heart in verse 4. So David inquired of the Lord yet again. When David had been, his heart had been filled with fear, you remember, a few chapters earlier, he hadn't sought the Lord at all, even though he had the high priest in front of him. He had the high priest in front of him. He lies to him. He doesn't seek the Lord's counsel at all. He comes up with his own plan, and of course, that doesn't go well. He was leaning on his own understanding. But now that he's fixed his heart, he is seeking the Lord about what to do with information that comes his way, even, even if the Lord's direction might put him closer to danger. And yet, even though that's a good place to be, that David is willing to go wherever the Lord wants him to go, even if it's into danger, David's attitude, and when he hears from the Lord, isn't guns a-blazing, I'm on a mission from God, who are you to question me? When they say, David, have you thought this through? He listens to their concerns, and he humbly asks the Lord for direction a second time, for confirmation. So David inquired of the Lord yet again, and the Lord answered him and said, Arise, which means it's time to go, David. You did hear correctly the first time. Arise and go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. I love this. I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. There is nothing to fear, David. There's nothing for you or your men to be afraid of because I'm going with you. I will deliver them into your hands. We have this crisis in Israel early on in their history when Moses goes up on the mountain and the people, of course, he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights, and the people are thinking to themselves, nobody can live that long. You know, we haven't seen him. He's, he's dead. I mean, there's just the whole mountain's on fire. God's killed him. He's dead. And so they come to Aaron, and they say, listen, man, this, this Moses guy who brought us out here, we don't know what's happened to him. So you know, make us, make us a, a god so we can figure out what our next course of action is. And, of course, you know how that goes. That goes very poorly. When God, yeah, someone laughed. That was an understatement. Yeah. When, when the Lord tells Moses, he says, Moses, get down to your people that you brought out of Egypt because I'm going to wipe them out. And of course, we know that whole interaction between Moses and the Lord because Moses reminds the Lord, he says, Lord, and not that the Lord needed the reminding, but he reminds the Lord, he says, Lord, these are your people that are called by your name that you brought out of Egypt. They're not my people. And, and if you remember, after the Lord 
is gracious with Israel, he still tells Moses, so he says, fine. He says, I will, I won't wipe them out, but I'm not going with you. Because if I go with you, they'll do it again and I'll have to break forth and wipe them out. He says, I'll send my angel before you. He will defeat the Canaanites and bring you into the promised land and you can go. And you know, Moses is just kind of sitting there going, no, no, that's not the plan. Like the, the promised land isn't the promised land if you're not there. Like if you, if you don't go, I don't want to go. Basically, the, the Moses tells him, please go with us. And remember, this is your people. He says, if I have found grace in your sight, and you say, I know you by name. If all this is true, then Lord, pardon our sin and go with us. And the Lord, he is moved by Moses's prayer. And he says, I'll go with you. And of course, it culminates when Moses is, you know, you strike while the iron's hot, right? He says, oh, Lord, show me your glory. He's like, I don't want to stop here. I want to see it all. And so the Lord hides him in the cleft of the rock. He he passes by him. As he's passing by, he declares his name to him. He gives Moses the best glimpse of God's glory that he can have because he can't see his face and live. So he declares his name, his character, his attributes, who he is, what he's like to him. And then he lets Moses see his afterglow, his hinder parts. And when it's all said and done, Moses falls on his face and he goes, oh, Lord, you're too good. And he thanks the Lord. But right after all that's done, I mean, this is a roller coaster ride for Moses and the nation of Israel. I mean, it could have been one of the most horrible things ever. But after it's all said and done in Exodus 34.10, after Moses says, oh, Lord, pardon us, go with us, do all, do all these awesome things, after he sees the glory of God, in verse 10, the Lord says to him, behold, I make a covenant Before all your people, I will do marvels, such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among which you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. The Lord says, you ain't seen nothing yet. God, our God is an awesome God. There's a reason we sing a song with those lyrics. He is an awesome God and he does awesome things. In our scripture reading, we read from Psalm 145. I read the first seven verses. And we don't know when David wrote this song. The only thing it mentions is that it calls it David's psalm of praise. It doesn't say a psalm of praise by David. It says it's David's psalm of praise. And what the rabbis taught was that this was David's favorite song. It was his go-to song when he wanted to just praise the Lord. And this song is awesome because it declares God's awesomeness. He says in verse one of Psalm 145, I will extol you, my God, O King. I'm gonna praise you. I'm gonna lift you up. I'm gonna talk about how awesome you are. And I will bless your name forever and ever because there will always be a reason to bless the Lord. Every day will I bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Why? Verse 3, great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. And his greatness, it says, is unsearchable. It means it's beyond our understanding. His greatness is beyond our understanding. In other words, if, if you think you've got God's greatness and awesomeness figured out, keep studying because you haven't reached the top yet. 
there's still more greatness and more awesomeness to learn about and to see. I love one of the parts of Ephesians 2 where it mentions he's going to be showing us his kindness for all eternity. You know, it's almost like we're going to get to heaven and we're going to go, God, you're so awesome, Lord, you're so great. And he's going to be like, let me show you something else. And you're like, whoa, that's awesome, Lord. You're so awesome. You're so great. And then the next, I don't even know how time's going to be measured then, but whatever, whatever the next day is, or whatever that even sounds like in there, he'll be like, let me show you something else. And it'll be like that for all eternity. Great is the Lord. Greatly to be praised. One generation shall praise your works to another. I love telling my kids stories about all that God's done in my life. They'll come to me with something going on. They'll say, Dad, I'm I'm frustrated or whatever. And I say, let me tell you a story. I love telling them about the awesome things God's done in my life. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Because God does mighty things. I will speak of the glorious honor of your majesty and of your wondrous works, your miraculous works. And men, not just me that will say this, men will speak of the might of your awesome acts. The King James says terrible, but it means awesome. And I will declare your greatness. Our God is an awesome God. He is. And he does awesome things. And while David has already seen the Lord help him defeat many foes, this will be the first of many miracles that the Lord will do while David is a fugitive. And so verse 5, back in 1 Samuel 23, it says, So David and his men went to Keilah, and they fought with the Philistines, and they brought away their cattle and smote them with a great slaughter. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Now, How did the battle go? Well, first it lets us know how bad the situation was because it tells us that after it was over that David drove off, brought away, it actually means he drove off their cattle. In other words, the Philistines were so confident that no one would challenge their victory here that they had moved their cattle into the region. They were settling down. They were were letting them graze and nobody's going to challenge us here. But that also indicates to us just how thorough David's victory was. It wasn't even close. It was a slaughter, the scripture says. He smote them with a great slaughter, and so David rescued, he saved the inhabitants of Keilah. This will be the first of many situations that forge David's men into an elite fighting force that later on when we get, I think it's in 2 Samuel, where we're going to see lists of David's mighty men. And, And so many of these guys, they come from this group. They were nobody when they came to him. They were fugitives from the law. They weren't anything special. And yet from encounter after encounter after encounter that God puts David in, these men are forged into an amazing fighting force. I have gone through the tunnels of the ancient city of Jebus, the ancient Jerusalem, and they take you there and they take you to the part where Joab likely attacked. The part where David said, hey, listen, anybody can take that city, you know, and he he said, you can be captain over my armies because, and Joab, you have to understand Joab. I know I'm getting a little ahead of the story, but Joab is, that, that guy was a thorn in David's side. He fires him like multiple times from being captain of the army. And so this time, you know, David says, and I need a new captain. So whoever can get up there and take the top of the city, he'll be my next captain. And Joab's going, where do I start? But you go into this tunnel. I mean, it's not much wider than my pulpit. I mean, it doesn't, it, 
it's not that hard to defend. I mean, you, you just put some, a stack of bodies there. You got to get through them all. And so for Joab to be the guy that's the first one up there waving at David going, hey, boss, no need looking for a new captain, I'm it. He, I mean, he's got to single-handedly just mow down everybody that's in front of him. These guys, they've forged into this amazing elite fighting force. It's through small encounters like this that God began to do that. Now, before we learn what happens after this victory, the writer explains to us how David could consult the Lord in the first place, verse 6. And it came to pass when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David to Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. Now, the ephod is the part of the robe that contained the pockets for the Urim and the Thummim. And again, we're not sure what these things were. Some people think they were uh, two stones. One meant yes, one meant no. I don't know if that's true. But whatever they were, that's how they would consult the Lord. You could ask the Lord yes or no questions through the high priest, through the use of the Urim and the Thummim. And so remember, Abiathar is the at least the only one we know of, I think some others probably survived, but he's the only priest we know of that survived Saul's slaughter of the city of Nob. And what's interesting is he took the time to go and get the ephod and the Urim and the Thummim to rescue them. That says a lot about Abiathar's character because instead of simply running for his life, you know, he risks his life to carry on the responsibilities of the high priest so that the people of God could hear from their God. Now, With David and his men coming out into the open like this, news is going to reach Saul. And when it does, the king who couldn't lift a finger to come to his people's aid decides to take advantage of David's exposed position. Look at verse 7. And it was told Saul that David was come to Keilah. And Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he is shut in by entering into a town that has gates and bars. And so it says in verse 8 that Saul called all the people together to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. I love what. David Goodzik said in light of Saul's comments here, he says, it was true that God led David to Keilah, and it was true that this exposed David to Saul's attack. But it was not true that God had delivered David into Saul's hand. That is an absurd notion. How did Saul get this twisted mindset? God delivered David into his hand? Has he forgotten the words of Samuel that the Lord has rejected him as king? God doesn't deliver anybody into Saul's hand anymore. Has he forgotten his sin that he's never repented of? And yet, Saul truly believes he's the one in the right. How is it possible for a person to get to that place? Turn over to 2 Timothy with me. I want to just share a contrasting section of Scripture with you. When Paul is speaking to Timothy, he remember, he's teaching Timothy how to be a pastor, uh, because the first letter's written because he, he anticipates that his time away from Timothy is going to be longer than he thinks. So that's what First Timothy's written. Second Timothy, he knows he's not going to get out of jail this time. And so he, he wants, these are his final words to young pastor Timothy. And as he's contrasting, you know, Timothy, this is how you need to be. Don't be like the, the false teachers. He says something very interesting here in verses 12 and 13 of Second Timothy chapter 3. He says in verse 12 of 2 Timothy, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But, verse 13, in contrast to the godly, evil men and seducers, they'll wax worse and worse. And here it is. Deceiving and 
being deceived. We must never forget the book of 1 Samuel's proximity to the book of Judges. The prevailing theme during the time of the period of the Judges was every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's the theme of the book of Judges. And that is Saul's mindset. You know, I know I'm right. I I know that God told me I'm wrong, but I know I'm right. And so I'm going to just keep moving forward with my own way, my own understanding, because I know I'm right. And so somehow he convinces himself that David is in the wrong and that God has finally gotten on board with his plan. We see Saul do this over and over again where he thinks, oh God, good, finally, you're on board with my plan. And that's what he's thinking here. Now he might be saying, how do I stop from getting there? How do I protect myself from getting to that place? Paul tells Timothy here. He says, those who will live godly in Christ Jesus, they're going to suffer persecution. I know it doesn't sound exciting, but that's the truth of how it works out. Evil men, they're just going to get worse and worse. They're going to deceive others and be deceived themselves. But you, Timothy, don't do that. How do you protect yourself from that? You continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned them. What is the things that he's learned? Verse 16. Verse 15 mentions the Holy Scriptures. And then Paul says, all Scripture, verse 16, is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable. It's for our good, for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, for that rebuke, for correction, how to get right, and then instruction in righteousness, how to stay right. The Word of God is profitable for that, so that the man of God may be perfect, means mature, thoroughly equipped unto all good works, protected from these types of things. This was something that Saul had not done. The Lord said, there's going to come a day when you will make a king. And, and I'm going to lay down some, some bylaws for that. And, and of course, the Lord you know, says, hey, he, he's the king of my choosing. Then he, he puts down some things that the king can't do. Don't, do. don't multiply wives. Don't go down to Egypt to buy horses. You know, don't multiply riches. But then he says that what he must do, he must write a copy. He personally must write his own copy of the law. And he needs to read it regularly. Saul didn't do that. Surely there's no way he could have done that. Because if he did do that, he would read things about like, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt love the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He would read things that would be clearly in contradiction to how he's being a king. And as a result, it would protect him from being deceived. But as often as the case when I deceive myself, I just look at things in the natural, not looking at the word of God. And so his mindset is, ah, he's shut in. He's, he's physically confined to the city. He's in his town and has gates and bars now. He's not wandering throughout the land. And so verse 8, Saul summons his entire army to crush David. It says he called all the people together to war, every tribe, to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. An entire army to crush a few hundred men? What is Saul doing here? Well, you see, Saul wants to make a spectacle of this. See, he's going to come down with the entire army as if he's going to attack the Philistines that he'd heard had, you know, done all this to Keilah. But finding David in the city instead, and the Philistines already gone, he'll divert his army to threaten the people of Keilah with destruction if they don't turn David in. Look at verse 9, because David 
He knows that's what's going to happen. Verse 9, and David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him. In other words, when word reaches David that Saul's bringing the entire army, he sees through the charade. He knows Saul has no intention of fighting the Philistines. And, and so, the, now, in a normal situation like this, okay, you know, hey, David, David, they got, they got news. What's going on? Saul's bringing the whole army down to fight the Philistines. Yeah, that's not why he's coming down. What would you normally do? What's the normal thing to do? You run, right? I mean, it seems like the obvious decision. You, you get out. Get out of Dodge. And yet, notice what David does. When he knew this, it says, He said to Abiathar the priest, Bring hither the ephod. David seeks the Lord about what to do next. And then said David, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. I've been here before. He says, will the men of Keilah deliver me up into his hand? Instead of making up a lie, like he did with uh, Himelech, he asks the Lord, he goes, are they going to turn me in? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? And the Lord answers the second question, not the first. The Lord said he will come down. So David asks again, will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will. They will deliver you up. Sometimes I hear people criticize prayers that inform God about a situation because they'll say, well, God already knows the situation. You don't need to inform him about it. He's God. Prayer in its most basic level is simply talking to the Lord. It's talking with the Lord. And just because the Lord knows everything already doesn't mean he doesn't want to interact with us. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours. Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.